<laughs> Thank you very much. I do appreciate that. Okay. I think, it's that, I think it was that last song got me there a bit. Uh, hopefully my, uh, my voice will warm up. Um, good, hello. Thank you uh, for having me. There we go. It's nice to be here. Uh, nice to see some faces all around the building there and welcome online. I'll just keep uh, talking for a little bit to help the sound guys uh, just uh, get the levels. But I shall uh, begin maybe with a, a prayer. I thank you Lord for speaking to us. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us this morning, uh, and I pray that you would continue to do that, even through me. Um, we're carrying on our series that we've been uh, working through in the life of Abraham, and we've reached chapter 24, and that's where I'm going to be speaking from today. When I was in year four, I was taught that good stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And uh, stories within stories, they have beginnings, middles and ends, aren't they? Life has beginnings, middles and ends. And stories are full of characters, aren't they? They have characters that have connections, they have relationships with each other. And they have dialogue while they communicate. So... Always an important part of a story, and we're going to see some of that today. And whilst I appreciate the creativity, the flexibility that can be built into a made-up story. I really love a true story. That edge of reality and relatability that comes. So initially, this, this is a true story we're going to be looking at today. Uh, and this would have been passed on orally from one generation to the next. And maybe that's why it fits this story structure so well. Now, it's a very, it's a very long story. It's 67 verses. It's the longest book in Genesis. Uh, it takes up twice as much ink as the account of all creation. Maybe that's in itself might make us sit up and take notice. But because of that, I'm going to be summarising bits of it as we go through. We're not going to get through uh, all of it. You might want to read it at home uh, and, uh, and go into more detail yourself afterwards, but I'm going to pick some stuff through it. Uh, we're going to look at the beginning where there's a bit of a plan hatched. Then we're going to go on to the substantial middle section where all the action and adventure takes place. And then we're going to come into land at the happy ending. So that's where we're going today. Um, and as we look at what God is doing and how he includes the people in the story and, 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 and in their lives, we're going to encounter some, some really good examples of relationship and communication. Uh, so my hope is that that will help us and teach us something uh, as we seek to, to love God and to love each other and, and to love those that he's uh, calling us to go and reach. So we pick up the story with Sarah having just died. And we're going to start reading at the beginning of the chapter. Abraham was now very old and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives 
and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land and who spoke to me and promised me an oath saying, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send an angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. Abraham recognises that he's nearing the end of his life, but he's still carrying the promise that God will make him into a nation of people with a land and that there'll be a blessing to all nations. As Sam was just reminding us there, he's still holding on to the promise. He's still living with that promise. And he knows that Isaac is the child of that promise. And so it's Isaac's, uh, Isaac's descendants that are going to inherit this land. But at this point, Isaac is a bachelor. And it falls to Abraham to find Isaac a wife. That's how marriages were arranged in that culture then. Uh, and indeed, it remains a significant cultural method used throughout the world today. Uh, parents would arrange marriages for their children. Abraham, as we've looked at in previous weeks, is the start of God establishing his people as a race, as a nationality. So that expression of, of that working that out at this point is not to, to mix in marriage with the nations that he's living amongst. And of course, many cultures or individuals still frown on those marrying outside their own culture all around the world today. So does that have any relevance for us today on a day where we announce two engagements? Well, who are we? We've been reminded all through this series that we are the children of Abraham. We're believers. We're those who have, been, who have received righteousness by faith. That includes the circumcised and the uncircumcised, Jews and Gentiles. Eventually, it will include people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. So as a people of faith and promise, if God's calling us into marriage, and that won't be for everyone, we will want to align our choice to someone who is also a person of faith in Jesus and of the same promise. We can go to the verse in, in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, where it says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, Paul is not just talking about marriage at that point, but if he's referring to a, a broader set of relationships, close relationships being yoked together with, then surely he's including this most intimate of one. And although there's a warning, we can take note of how Paul introduces his own heart as he's giving that advice. He says, I speak to you as my children. He loves these guys. He's advising them for their benefit. This is good advice that we can heed. But I'm not going to carry on talking about marriage. I'm going to talk uh, about Abraham and his, this, this continuing to make his plan at the beginning and what he's got in front of him. And he's making a plan in line with his long-carried promises. He's determined that it's going to be back to his relatives to find a wife for Isaac. But he is, as was pointed out right at the beginning, very old. 
And what's more, he's not got Sarah to help him. I can imagine this being a point in his life where he massively misses Sarah. I imagine she would have been well up for the, a project, uh, project find a wife for Isaac. Uh, I, I, can, I can just imagine her loving that. But anyway, maybe for Abraham, that means he's got like a fresh wave of, of grief to, to, to experience and to process. Maybe he's thinking back to that time when God said, just listen to Sarah and do what she says. I'm thinking, I wish it was one of those moments again. His relatives all live hundreds of miles away. It's a massively physically challenging journey and uh, probably too much for an old man, he thinks to himself. He's thinking about maybe his personal inadequacy for the task in front of him. So he needs someone to go for him. And who is he going to send on such an important mission? Well, step forward, his senior servant. As I've studied this passage, I've, uh, I've, I've, this nameless servant has become uh, quite, quite a hero of mine, actually. Uh, perhaps when we first hear the term servant, we attempt to look, look down our nose. Uh, well, can we talk about Abraham, the master, instead? Not just a servant. I can imagine that Abraham, in his prime, with his growing wealth, would have been taking on staff, employing young servants all over the place. And, uh, uh, but, but, but here we get to a very different season. Things have, things have changed. Over, over time, the servant, he's achieved several promotions. At one point, he had senior added to his title, probably instead of a pay rise. And this guy is now in charge of everything that Abraham had. And we know that Abraham has accumulated huge amounts of livestock, of possessions. We know he can afford 400 shekels for a, a field and a cave. We know he's got a fleet of camels and donkeys. He's got expensive gifts and jewelry ready to go. We're gonna see that in a minute. And, and this servant looked after it all. He's grown to carry huge responsibility. So perhaps it's not that surprising that Abraham entrusts this great mission to him too. And we can imagine that this servant now understands, well, thinks he understands his master quite well. He'd have, he'd have learned how he thought. He'd have known how precious Isaac was to him, how important he was to the promise. He probably would have grieved with Abraham as Sarah was buried. Perhaps the, the perhaps, we can deduce that this servant has become more of a friend than a servant. At the same time, the widower, Abraham, his strength is waning. He has to ask for help more than he used to. He needs family and friends, trusted friends around him. We see the Lord providing that. The strength of this relationship between the servant and Abraham is also indicated by the way the servant and, and Abraham communicate so openly with each other. Abraham asks him, the, asks him to do this important task. The servant takes the time to ask some clarifying questions. He says, what if she won't come? Can Isaac go there? Abraham welcomes the opportunity to have the conversation. He tells him, explains why he's laid down this boundary. 
It's so important. It's in order to keep in line with the promise. Important conversations. This suggests that their relationship, I think, has transcended their kind of master-servant titles. They're working together on the Lord's business, yet each with their own responsibilities and boundaries. And we see both of them kind of taking this initiative on communication. Lots we can learn. We already know that Abraham is a friend of God, and we're going to see in a bit that so is the servant. And of course, the relationship we have with God should and will reflect the relationships we have with others. Reflect in the relationships we have with others. We get that the right way around. Starts with our relationship with God and it flows into our relationship with others. We've got a healthy, loving relationship with God, with his son Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. Then that will pour out, flow into the relationships. They'll become healthy and loving with people. We, we remind ourselves of it. Paul reminded of us already this morning, right at the beginning. Love God, love people. Just turn to John 15, in verse 15. You can see what Jesus said on this. I'm going to John for the words of Jesus. So, in verse 15, he says, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Amazing, amazing words. So remarkable. My interpretation of Abraham and his servant's relationship is anywhere near the mark. Then how much deeper, how much more significant is our relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? How much more significant? Jesus calls us friends. We can live like his friend. We keep talking to him in good times, in tough times. We work through the misunderstandings we sometimes have of him. He's never unapproachable. Such love we sung about earlier. He, he will always love us. We don't think of ourselves as a disappointment to him. We don't pretend about what's keeping us up at night. We live in openness and honesty with him. And we keep going to him for advice, for direction, for love, for comfort, for everything. And that's the direction we're heading in, in our relationships with others too. That's our model to emulate. Of course, we often fall far too short. That just brings all the more opportunity for restoration, doesn't it? Jesus makes a way. The Holy Spirit now living in us, he's caught us up in God's plan. He's revealing things to us, as Jesus said. You don't just get a few tasks to execute, some instructions to follow, go away and do that. Don't ask any questions. No, we get to clarify. We get to, to ask the questions. We get to really understand. And he gives us real responsibility as a church. We've got real responsibility not just to enjoy being his glorious church, but we've also been entrusted with extending his kingdom. So how does the action and the adventure 
part of the story transpire? Well, bit of summary. The servant and his team set off on 10 camels to travel to Nahor, a few hundred miles away. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 12, where it says, Then he prayed, Lord of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one that you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Sorry. Before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. I'm just going to pause there in the story. Uh, and, and actually, I'm going to jump forward. I'll, jump forward. I'll just skip a few verses. Let's go to verse 19. And after she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have had enough to drink. There it is. That answer to prayer that comes right away. So I just get, I just get overwhelmed. Sometimes God answers a prayer straight away, doesn't he? And it's just, it's just wonderful. And uh, I get excited about that and a bit emotional. There we go. <clears throat> um, so arrangements are then made. They go back to the house, meet the family. Uh, he discovers that she is indeed a relative uh, and, and available, if I can use that word. The, uh, and they meet her brother Laban, her dad Bethuel, uh, and he tells them the whole story, tells them what's happened, and then skipping right on to verse 50, another key verse in the, in the chapter here, Laban, and, uh, he, he, you know, he gets to this, he's told them the whole story, and he says, what do you think, what do you think? Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebecca. Take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. Brilliant stuff. What a story. Let's just go back a bit, though. Let's go back to the, the point where the servant's setting off. Uh, let's imagine that, like him, we don't actually know what's going to happen next. He's got a mission. He's clarified the boundaries, the limits to what decisions he can make, what he can't. And he even knows what conditions would mean abort the mission, even though Abraham is very confident that he won't be needing that if, if, if Isaac mustn't go back there, abort, abort. But it's a long journey, it's physical risks. He doesn't know what's going to happen when he actually gets there. You know, we've just read, read ahead, but at this point he doesn't know. He wasn't able to phone ahead and, and make a booking, uh, line up a, a date with, uh, with Rebecca. He's going into the absolute unknown. So how can we relate to that? Can you relate to that at all? Maybe in life, uh, you might have a time when you set off for your first day at a new school, or set off for your first day at home school. I guess you wouldn't set off, would you? But anyway, go to your first day at home school. Uh, or when you maybe go to an interview for a new job. Maybe you're moving house, moving towns. Maybe there'll be a time when you leave paid work to raise a family. Or you retire from your paid employment and begin, begin a new pattern. Or maybe you're about to start deeper discipleship, or discipleship training, or school of leadership. 
The servant doesn't know how things will unfold. He doesn't know if the mission will be a success or not. Nevertheless, he sets off. Maybe you don't know what your next step is going to look like and feel like, how it will unfold. Nevertheless, you're going to set off. Because people of faith take steps of faith. And they're always steps into the unknown. People of faith take steps of faith. So he set off, he arrived at Nahor, and what was his first action on arrival? It was to pray. I know you all knew the answer. You didn't realise that I wanted you to answer, but I, I didn't make that clear. Don't worry, I know you knew it all. It was to pray. He asks God to be showing his will, and he does it just in the stuff of everyday life, doesn't he? Is that always our first action? Do we look for God to be speaking us, to us in, in everyday life, in everyday interactions with folk you know or don't know, like when they're pouring water for your camel? Again, the Bible teaches much on prayer, and I'm not going uh, to attempt to cover all of it today. You'll be glad to know. I'm just going to hit this one point, though. This prayer in the moment, uh, it, can, it can change the course of the following minutes. We can get, it can have an instant effect before we've even finish praying, answers can come. By orienting, orienting ourselves towards God in the moment of decision or need, gives God an opportunity to bless us with that while we're still praying answer. There's other times and ways to pray, but I just love this way. It, it, it works well. You can do it on your own. You can do it with a friend, a parent, a spouse. You can do it in person. You can do it on the phone. You can do it on Zoom. It can change the whole tone and direction of uh, perhaps a contentious conversation. Maybe a need or a, a problem has surfaced and the, uh, a, a, a problem-solving conversation, if I can call it that, is gaining some momentum. At this point, you can just press pause. Say, hold on, before we carry on, let's pray. I'm going to pray. Lord, we invite you in. Take a lead right here, right now. Lord, open our eyes. Show us your way through. Soften our hearts. Help us in this time of need, etc., etc. It's not about a formula or ticking a box. It's about genuinely changing the moment from one of, right, I need to sort this out, or I need to make sure we do this my way, to one of, what's God going to do? what it does is it creates an opportunity to recognise that the Lord is at work. Now, the Lord is always at work. Did you know that? John 5, verse 17. Go back to John. In verse 17, uh, Jesus was being challenged about healing on the Sabbath uh, by the Jewish leaders, and he said to them in his defence, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. We live with limitations, we're weak, but we're made to be in relationship with the strong and unlimited one, working in partnership with him, relying on him for the plans and the opportunities. He gives us those opportunities to experience his help, and we, 
as, as we do indeed pray. The servant sees a potential answer. And he asks Rebecca for a drink. And when you get to the end of the conversation or when the, the ideas are formed up, the, the plans come together or peace has come in that moment or healing experienced, whatever was the need, whatever uh, was the moment, maybe it was your camels have been watered or you've just taken a step in the right direction. There's an opportunity then to give thanks, which you wouldn't get if you hadn't prayed. Verse 26, the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord saying, praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to his master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. He thanks the Lord for, for answered prayer. Uh, and again, after, after Laban and Bethuel have agreed uh, with him, he says, uh, it says, when Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Feels a bit obvious to say, really, uh, but, but we can overlook saying thank you and remembering to say thank you to God uh, as often as we can forget to have prayed in the first place. But this is about recognising where our help comes from. Shows that it's more important than just a prayer got answered, tick the box of thanks. No, this is about the relationship that grows with the one who answered it. I know I want this cycle of prayer, recognising God's work and giving thanks to him to increasingly become my habit in everyday life. Not an exception, but my default action. I know I need to keep practising that. Just coming back to the relational aspect, we see the servant in relationship with God. Not working on his own, not relying on his own skills or effort, but praying, trusting, stepping out, knocking on a door, noticing the response. Going back to that list that I gave you a moment ago of typical life changes, and maybe you've added your own to that list. We see, we, uh, um, you know, many of us would encounter different ones of those at different times. Uh, each one of those is an opportunity for us to not have all the answers. Each one is a time to lean on the one who does, to ask God to make the path, to let the lie that it's all down to you be exposed. To trust that he will provide for all that he has made, that his will will be done, that he will give you daily bread, that he will care for you like he does the birds of the air. Calmly knock on the doors and see which ones he opens. If we get into this habit of praying, noticing what God's doing, giving thanks, then we'll have things to tell others about. He goes on to testify about the way his prayer had been answered in such a way that it demonstrated God's provision. And it was that testimony that, that he gives to Laban and Bethuel that leads to them saying what they say, which is, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Now, the Bible's already stuffed full of testimony. In one way, that's enough. But God 
by his gracious spirit, continues to be at work so we can also have personal testimonies of what God is doing in our lives. I wonder how many times we will hear people say, this is from the Lord too, as we share our stories far and wide about when God led us to pray, when we took a step of faith, and he did something significant, and we gave him thanks. We're going to move on to the ending of the story now, which is a marriage. First, I have a bit of a discussion about when to set off, whether to delay, or whether to go straight away. And then in verse 58, they decide to ask Rebecca, and she, uh, will you go with this man? And she says, I will go. So they sent their sister Rebecca on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. Then Rebecca and her attendants got ready, mounted the camels and went back with the man. So they arrive home. And then finally she meets Isaac. Uh, 66, 67 verses before we get to that. Eh? Um, and then the servant told Isaac all he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebecca. So she became his wife and he loved her. So a typical story ending you know, might be where the hero and the heroine have been in love all the way through the story, get married and live happily ever after. Uh, this doesn't really fit that stereotype. There are some elements in there, maybe in a different order. Uh, they finally meet, uh, they get married, and it says then he loves her. But like I said, I'm not really talking uh, too much about uh, marriage today. Um, but uh, God's ways are higher than ours, aren't they? There's so much more to this than a happy couple, happy ending moment. In its original context, this is a vital step of, uh, of the sovereign God fulfilling his promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation. The entire story makes it clear that God has chosen Rebecca for Isaac and it's his providential leading in each step of the way. And they get this great prophetic confirmation as well as her family pray a blessing on her thousands upon thousands of offspring and then possessing cities. It aligns so well with, 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 the, with the prophetic that's already there over Isaac, being part of uh, the continued promise to Abraham to become a, a great nation. So this marriage is about more than their personal happiness. This is about the purposes of God. We, we must never lose sight of God's sovereignty in our lives, lest we revert to thinking that we're in control of our own lives. Uh, that we're in, in charge of our own destiny, that we think we're the centre and hero of our own story. Or even that we think that marriage is in some way the pinnacle of life. Apologies again to those that have just got engaged, but it's not. Um, and maybe to everyone that's married as well. Uh, Rebecca, there's this moment here where Rebecca has to make a choice. Does she follow God's plan for her life and marry Isaac, or does she not? 
You're going to face your own choices at different times as God unfolds his plans for your life. And the most important one will be the one that Christina was referring to earlier, this relationship. Do you enter a relationship with Jesus? This relationship is the pinnacle of life. This is life itself. And it's worth taking a moment to note something here. There's no conflict between divine sovereignty, between God's plan and human responsibility, the choice that we have as humans. Again, back to John's Gospel. John 6 and verse 37. Jesus covers both of these things in one statement. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Rebecca has seen that God has opened up this amazing opportunity, and she agrees. She chooses. She consents. She is a willing bride. She's not even met Isaac at this point, but trusts that this is God's plan that this is the moment, and she commits. If you've heard today this invite into a relationship, a friendship with God through Jesus, then that'll be because it was God's plan for you to hear it today. And if you've heard this invite into the relationship, then, like Rebecca, you can respond to that invite. You can consent, you can enter into a relationship with God today. Rebecca, she says, no, I'm not waiting 10 days, today. I'd encourage you to do the same. Don't wait 10 days. Who knows what might happen in 10 days? If you're self-isolating, not very much, but I'm sure Chris would want to pray with you, or I will, if you, if you want any help with taking those steps of repentance and coming into a relationship with Jesus as we, uh, as we end the meet, meeting in shortly. But as I come to my end in here, there's one final view I want us to take on the marriage of Isaac and Rebecca, and indeed on, on any marriage. Um, I've been watching some Olympics this week, as well as Sam, and uh, gymnastics and diving I've been watching. And I found myself at one point joining in with the, the commentators, spotting where the judges need to make a deduction. For example, bit of extra splash, minus 0.1 for that. Step back on landing, shocking, rubbish, very disappointing. I had to catch myself and think, Chris, what on earth? Someone's just climbed 10 meters up in the air, thrown themselves off a platform, done some twists and some turns at great speed, the assistance of gravity, hit the water, barely a splash, let's be honest, or someone's run along, flipped over, hit a springboard, and then a vault, and then done some spins and twists and landed on their feet. Amazing. Things I'm never going to do. We can get drawn into those small, looking at those small imperfections and becoming critical. And uh, I had to check my heart. And I think in the same way, in doing so, we can think maybe that that's God's disposition. 
because I'm a bit like that, I can maybe project that onto God and thinking he's looking out for my, what, 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 what deductions he can take off of me for my mistakes. Maybe God in his grace sometimes will highlight an area where your theology or practice could be improved by 0.1. And if so, it will be because he, like Paul, will be doing it from a heart that's as a father to his dearly beloved children, lovingly desiring all goodness for you. But as we head into whatever's coming our way this week, let's be encouraged to think of ourselves as Christ thinks of us. Paul, when giving advice about Christian marriage to the Ephesians, concludes uh, by saying, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. In verse 67 there, Isaac loved Rebekah. Christ loves his church. That's us. His church. He's chosen to love us. A groom seeing a bride into the room, come down the aisle. He's going to say, wow. Not mm, minus 0.1 for the way she's holding the flowers. Christ sees his church and he says, come, let's live life together. Such love. We say such love. Can we do that this week, church? As a church, as we walk alongside each other, in love with Jesus, communicating with him continuously, praying, seeing him at work, giving him thanks. Let's worship together now as we, as we uh, think about how we respond. Let's worship together as one church. Let's come together with unity. Let's come together with song and give him our worship.